0: Okay, so I wanted at the start to put some really cool quotation up at the top of the page. I spent a lot of time looking for a really cool quotation from someone really smart to put up there. I couldn't find one. So I made my own up and thought, I'll just attribute it to someone. But I thought, well, that'd be a lie. You can't really lie, especially in a book about the Lord. So... It's just up there, but here it is. It's your question as we look at this, or you something to chew on. I'm going to suggest to you, if you think God is who you think he is, then your God is too small. If you think that God is who you think he is, then your God is too small. Now, for me to prove my point to you this morning, I need to step back and we need to get into a little neuroscience. I don't know who in here might be a neuroscientist, but uh, by the way, I'm drawing these pictures for the PowerPoint to avoid copyright issues. Since this is going to ultimately go out in a published form, we hope. And yes, this week I was drawing them myself. I did not have the benefit of Becky and the girls to help me. I was doing it on the airplane, flying home from London yesterday. And the stewardess, the flight attendant, she keeps walking back and forth. And finally, towards the end of the flight, she says to me, with her British accent, she's a about 55-year-old lady. She says to me, are you an artist? <laughs> I said to her, well, not really, no. And she said, because I've noticed you drawing the whole flight with uh, your colored pencils and all. And I said, "Yeah, I said that's I'm putting together a presentation for church tomorrow, and so I've been trying to draw some illustrations to go with it." And she says, "That makes you an artist?" I said, "Well, not really." She reaches under my legal pad and pulls up the pictures that I've drawn that I'm scanning in. She looks at one. She looks at the next. She looks at the <laughs> next. And she says, You are no artist. (laughs) Puts them back down, turns around, walks off. So I would like to use this fancy artwork in the PowerPoint to help illustrate my point about how neural pathways work. How does your brain think about things? And one of the, the textbooks I read on neuroscience compared it to a scoop of your brain's thinking to a scoop of ice cream in a bowl. And it said, if you take water and you pour... Hold on. If you take water and you pour the water onto the ice cream, it will go down in... Yeah, I may not be able to draw, but I can do PowerPoint. It... Uh, uh, <laughs> the water will go down in channels on the ice cream. It doesn't just go all over the ice cream evenly. It finds these little channels and it will, if it's hot water, it will actually cause little gullies. And if you came and you poured more liquid over it, that more liquid would go down the same gullies. And that's the way our minds work. We form ways of thinking about things. And when we get new information and new data, we typically just plug it into what we already know and how we already think. That's one reason the, the, the social scientists will tell you are, uh, the, that brainstorming helps you come up with new ideas because it jumps you out of your neural pathways because some explanation or something being said will joggle someone else's mind. It goes down a different pathway for them so they'll rejoin the conversation with something that hops way over to a different pathway for you and 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 it just changes the way you think so this is what our minds do our minds will find those channels those ways of thinking and we tend to interpret new things by what we've already thought before and they go down those same channels does that make sense that means your mind is basically a scoop of strawberry bluebell ice cream now I looked at this and I thought about um, an old cover for the New Yorker magazine. I think it was in about 1976 that this cover, it was view from Ninth Avenue or something like that. View of the world. I thought, well, what did I think the world looked like? When I was in 1976, I lived on 16th Street in Lubbock, Texas. And if you had told me, Mark, draw a picture of the world. My view would have looked something like this in more ways than one. This is about how well I drew back in 1976. In fact, this is the drawing she was on when she handed it back to me and said, You are no artist. This is the view of the world from 16th Street. I knew those houses down at the bottom of the picture. One of them was mine. And I knew that Rush Elementary School was off to the left. I always thought of New Mexico as being off to the right. Though when Dale Hearn emailed me over it, he made the point that actually it was behind me. So I had no sense of geography. But I always thought New Mexico was off to the right. Then there was Texas Tech as we're looking down the street. And that was a huge school. They had a massive football stadium. And past them, there were a bunch of cotton fields. And somewhere off to the right would have been the Gulf of Mexico and Houston where they had oil. And the capital in Washington, D.C., and I think there was a skyscraper in New York City. Other than that, you've got the ocean, and over on the other side, there's England and continental Europe and Africa. But as a practical matter, Europe and Africa and England all put together weren't quite as big as the Texas Tech Stadium. (laughs) Because this is the way I thought. These were the things I knew and the things I knew were big. You know, um, child psychologists will frequently ask children to draw a picture of their family. And from that picture, they'll make assessments. And one of the assessments they'll make is, who does the child draw as the bigger person? Because that's someone who for some reason or another is bigger in the child's mind. Or who does the child draw standing next to the child? That may be someone the child is closer to. Drawings can reflect the unconscious mind to some degree. And this was my view of the world. These were my neural pathways. Now you'll notice between Texas Tech and the cotton fields, that's the church where I went to church. God fit into my neural pathways. God was there. God was was part of it. I went to church. Mom and dad took us to church. We were not SMOs. Do you know what a SMO was? S-M-O? Sunday morning only? We were not SMOs. We were there Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. And and we prayed over meals. And I prayed before I went to sleep at night. And if I had something really important happening, I would pray about that. And I'd listen to Christian music, I read my Bible every day, God fit into my neural network as a high school kid in Lubbock, Texas. And he fit real well, and I could tell you about God. I could tell you where he fit into my world. My wife is fond of pointing out to me that in high school I told her I knew most everything that anybody needed to know about God, and she could feel free to ask me questions if she had any. (laughs) I have hopefully learned some humility since then because I didn't know diddly about God, and I'm not sure that I know that much more today. But I thought I did. I had him in my neural network as a kid. Here's what happens, though. As we grow... And the scientists will tell you this. I mean, this isn't G. Mark Lanier's up there speculating. This is basic head stuff that, the, that, 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 that the, this is 101. As we grow, our pathways continue to develop and continue to mold, and we continue to accumulate more information. The, as, our, as we grow, our views grow, and our views get bigger. And it's just what happens. And it happened to me. And I grew and my views got bigger and bigger and bigger. By the time I got to college, I'll fast forward you to 1980. In 1980, 81, I think it may have been the spring of 81. I went and I heard this fella in concert. His name was Keith Green. And Keith Green said uh, he was... He he just played a bunch of stuff. He played piano. And it was just him and his piano. And he said, I got to tell you what happened to me recently. He said, I was sleeping. And I had a dream that King David was singing Psalm 8. And playing it on the harp. And he said, the melody was so vivid. That I woke up in the middle of the dream. And I knew the melody. And so I ran to the piano. My wife, Melody, was sleeping. So I I turned my cassette tape recorder on. And I quietly pinged out the song on the piano and sang it into the cassette recorder. He said, now I'm sure it's not at all what David's song sounded like. But I want to play it for you anyway. And I had never really dealt with Psalm 8 before. But I really, really loved this song. So it takes a couple of minutes, but instead of me reading to you Psalm 8, I'm going to let Keith Green sing it to you, and then we're going to pick back up on the old neural pathways because this is very important to what we've got to study today. So listen to Keith Green, and um, he will sing it for you. And this is us reading through the Scriptures. This is like a
1: twofer. Majestic is thy name in all the earth. Oh Lord, how Lord, how majestic is thy name. Majestic is thy name in all the earth. Oh Lord, how Lord, how majestic is thy name.
0: in the concert as he was singing it thinking I wonder what David's sounded like and I couldn't relate because I was not the musician that that David was or King Keith Green was but but I had certainly laid out on the hillside at night and I had looked up at the stars and I wondered If that's what David might have been doing, at least it seems what he was thinking of as he wrote this incredible psalm. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth! You have set your glory above the heavens. Now, I want to pause for a moment. We're going to be Bible scholars for just a moment before we delve back into the subject at hand. But it's important we look at this because there's something very unusual about this psalm. Oh, Lord, our Lord. If you'll see, the first Lord is written in all capitals. It's just their smaller font for the last three That's because the word used there is not the word that would be Lord, like like normal Lord. That's the actual name of God. That's what the King James would have translated as Jehovah. So this is, O Lord, our Lord. There the second Lord is Lord in the sense of of Lord for us. Even like you might call a king, or that you might call someone who's above you uh, a master or something like that. But that first Lord... Is Yahweh. The second one is the Adonenu from Adonai, but it's Yahweh, Lord. Oh Yahweh, how majestic is your name? See, that's because it's the name of God. But it's very unusual for the psalmist to say this because he says, "How majestic is your name in all the earth?" See, the name of God was something private with Israel. God revealed his name to Moses at the burning bush. He's telling Moses, go do what I tell you to do. Moses says, well, the people are going to want to know what your name is, God. What do I tell them? God says to him, Yahweh, Yahweh. And scholars get lost trying to translate it because the good Jews never pronounced it. They didn't preserve it in their language. It probably means uh, the one who is, he is. And you might be sitting there saying, well, don't they know how to say he is? Hebrew does not have a present tense. So this is likely the one who is or the one who will be. It's what his name means, but it's Yahweh. That is what he says to he, tell the people. It's Yahweh. So here it is. A special word, the special name of God. The name of God that's uniquely revealed to Israel through Moses. And David is saying that this name is majestic in all the earth. Not simply in Israel. And the reason why it's in all the earth... Is because that is the part of the world that's under the ska- stars and the sky. His whole point is the stars and the sky, your glory above the heavens. That is a glory displayed and it's a majesty displayed to, over the whole earth. Whether they know your name or not. The stars themselves... And so David's lying there and he can look at that night sky and look at all of those stars and he doesn't have the light pollution we have right now that keeps us from seeing stars so readily, at least in suburban Houston. But he says, when I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers. Now David doesn't understand what the stars are. He doesn't know, is there a dome that fits over the planet? Maybe there are these little holes pricked in it so that you can see some light from heaven behind it and the dome slowly rotates through the night. He doesn't know what these are. But he knows that they are the work of the fingers of God. When I look at your heavens, when I look at the work of your fingers, when I look at the moon, when I look at the stars that you have set in place, this majestic night... That covers the whole earth. He says, what's man? What's David? That you are mindful of him. Why would the God whose fingers have done this? Whose majesty is proclaimed all over the earth. Care about a shepherd boy on the hills of Judah watching his daddy's flock. What is any man? What is any child? Is the son of man? Yet, by God's deliberate choice, God has made him a little lower than all of the heavenly beings. God has crowned him with glory and given him dominion over the fish, over the birds, over the beasts of the field. Because God, in all of his spectacular glory, that's displayed in the heavens, his true glory is that he is mindful of man. And that's the psalm. Now, here I am, some kid whose view of the world, just a few years earlier, didn't even have stars in it. I wasn't even thinking of stars. Stars. And my view of God, even though it was real and I had a real relationship with Jesus, as a high school kid in Lubbock, Texas, my view of God was massively expanded as I started living and chewing and eating that psalm. But I want to tell you something. Even King David and that psalm are in a whole different universe today. Let me throw some NASA stats at you. Did you know if you and I could get away from the light pollution of Houston and we were to lay out on a, on a Judean hillside with no bad light pollution and gaze up at the stars, that if we could count what we are seeing, we would see something on the order of two to 3,000 stars. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth. You've displayed your splendor. You've made, look at these thousands of stars. What is man that you're mindful of him? But here's the next statistic. You want to know how many stars there are? Well, we don't know for sure. The best estimate seems to be something in the range of 100 sextillion stars. Let me write that out for you. That could be off by a zero either way. One hundred sexti I mean, start over here. This is bigger than the national debt. <laughs> Just barely. We've got hundreds, thousands, millions, billions, trillions, I think it's quadrillions, quintillions, Sextillions. They just write it as 10 to the 23rd power. So, the Lord didn't just put into place those two to 3,000 that David could see. There were stars put into place so far away that David wouldn't, in his wildest imaginations, think of them. Not to mention the fact that all of these stars are truly massive atomic explosions. With hydrogen and helium spewing out other matter. I mean, this is a massive, massive thing going on. And David says that, that God put them into place. And this is the work of his fingers that his hands have placed in the heavens. And that's true. And yet, astrophysicists will tell us that there are actually four forces of physics that set these stars in place. There's gravity that's pulling things together. There's electromagnetism that both pulls together and pushes apart. There's the strong force. There's the weak force that uh, work on a molecular level. This, uh, not an atomic level, excuse me. These are the four forces of physics that are determining, to some degree, where these stars are, where these galaxies are. Now, we need, at this point, to take a time out. We're going to do a side note. This is a side note about science and theology. If I were to put an incredible drawing of a tea kettle on the PowerPoint, or this, instead of an incredible one, and say to you, explain that boiling water... I suspect some of you would say, Bill Young's out there, Bill would say, well, you've got gas underneath it and the gas has been uh, 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 lit and and as a result it's uh, burning off the carbon part of the fossil fuel and, and that's creating heat as the energy is escaping and that energy is hitting the metal which is a conductive of the heat and so it's exciting the molecules within the water and it's causing it to boil and blah, 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 blah. Well, he's just done a really good way of telling us how. But you want to know an equally legitimate answer? I wanted some tea. That explains the boiling water. (laughs) See, that's the why. Science is really good at telling us how something happens. Theology is where we go if we want to understand the why. So, don't ever get sidetracked over the idea of God's hand placing this and say, well, is it God's hands or is it the four forces? They're both true. Who do you think wrote the four forces? Who do you think fine tuned the universe where those four sources exist so that stars can do what stars should do? It was Creator God. And we shouldn't ever get lost in confusing the hows and the whys. In fact, one of the biggest problems that, that, that historically has plagued the church is we have a tendency just to put God in the gaps. Here's the, here's the picture, image. If this is the world, and these are the things we know. Let's see, we know some things, some things we don't know. So we'll put the things that we know down here. This is what is known. This is what is unknown. Where do babies come from? That's down here. We know that now. What is an eclipse? Well, we know that now. But there are some things we don't know. And our tendency historically as people has been to say, okay, God will be God of the unknown. That must be what God does because we don't know. But this stuff down here, this is normal stuff. And this drawing and that idea has led to the idea that God is the God of the gaps the phrasing used by by, uh, uh, scholars when they talk about this view of God. He's the God of the gaps. Gaps between our knowledge of what's happening and why it's happening. Well, that must be God. That, my friends, is bad theology. Because the Bible teaches that all of this is God. All of it. God's behind it all. The why something may happen is because... Why are the stars where they are? Because that's where God wanted them to be. And he designed this universe in such a way that it will fulfill what he wanted it to do. So you can look at it either way. But don't let your view of God be so small that God can't be over science. Because that's too small a God. So, you can look out and see two to 3,000 stars at night. You can look out in the day and see one star. What do we call it if you're under 12? It's the sun. That's our star. And it's the star of our system, of our sun system. Our solar. Solar means sun. So, our sun system goes around our, our sun. Now, our sun... Is a million times bigger than the planet Earth. A million times larger than the planet Earth. It looks smaller, but that's because it's 93 million miles away. And our sun in this solar system is on the fringe of a galaxy. A galaxy is a huge collection of solar systems. We happen to be on the fringe of the Milky Way galaxy. Now, I can see the Big Dipper in the Big Dipper. I can see the Little Dipper in the Little Dipper. I have trouble seeing a Milky Way in that. But just saying it makes me hungry. And if we're going to be in a galaxy, that's not a bad one to be in. We are part of the Milky Way galaxy, so named because it looks kind of milky. In fact, galaxy comes from the Greek word of milky. It's milk-like. So it looks kind of milky out there, where all of those stars are so closely together. But if we were going to cross from one end of just our galaxy to the other, and we could travel at the speed of light, it would take us 100,000 years just to go across the Milky Way you know how many galaxies there are about 170 billion the, the the heavens are so much bigger than david ever conceived of when he's doing psalm 8 now i want to jump from david for a moment to paul because i love what paul says in romans 120 paul says Romans 120, that God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. You look, what kind of power does God have if he can create a hundred and seventy billion Milky Ways? If he can have a hundred sextillion stars, and have all of them firing at just the right speed. If God can oversee all of this creation, and he holds it in the palm of his hand, do you really think he's got trouble with handling your problems or mine? No, the majesty of God is so phenomenally large. He is so much more powerful. His power is beyond our ability to comprehend. And not only His power, but His divine nature is revealed. And it's revealed in the creation of the world and the things that are made. So how, here's the question, how are God's invisible attributes? How is his divine nature clearly perceived in the heavens? Lots of ways. But let me throw out just a couple of suggestions to you. My first suggestion is the the, the heavens are very predictable. They're very orderly. Because they are so predictable and so orderly, Uh, uh, you were able to say, if you were so inclined to do the study, that a couple of weeks ago, or was it last week, Venus was going to be passing between us and the sun. And if you got out there with the right things, the uh, European Space Agency has an incredible video that they took, and you can just watch Venus pass right in front of the sun. They knew that was going to happen. They know when the comets are coming. They know when the eclipses are coming. They can tell you exactly how that stuff's happening because it's predictable. With mathematic precision. They can send a rocket from Earth in 1960 whenever all the way to the moon. And put someone on the moon and bring them home. Working their slide rules to death. You kids don't know what that is. Those are calculators without batteries. (laughs) For someone who's so smart, they probably don't need one. Um, But that's what they could do. And they can do that because the universe is predictable. And it's orderly. And that shows God. It is a reflection of God's reliability. It is a reflection of God's faithfulness. He is 100% reliable. With mathematic precision. My son and I have waged through the intellectual debate. Could God make 2 plus 2 equal 5 if he wanted to? My answer to that was, and still is, absolutely not. Because logic, consistency, justice, reliability, orderliness, that is a divine attribute of God. 2 plus 2 equals 4 because God is consistent and will not lie and it's an expression of him and you can go to the bank on it and you can go to the bank on God's faithfulness and reliability and if you have any doubt about it see if the Sun rises in the east tomorrow because I suspect it will in fact if the Sun's going to rise tomorrow and I'm using that in an expression sense I know that that the earth is spinning Okay. If the sun is coming up tomorrow, it will not come up from the west. I'll guarantee it. Because I have a reliable and faithful God whose reliability and faithfulness is shown in the way the heavens interact. How else? Well, I think more of God's individual attributes are in the beauty. The astonishing beauty. Look at the horsehead nebula. I have yet to find anyone in my life say, Well, that's ugly. It's not It's a spectacular beauty. And that is a reflection of God's attributes. God is beautiful. And the people who see God and say, Oh, I can't worship a God like that. Do not see God in all of His glory. Or if they do, they need to change their glasses because they've got some filter on that's changing the perspective of God and who He is. I'm not saying it's not an awesome beauty. I'm not saying it's not a fearsome beauty. I'm not saying it's not a beauty to be respected. But I'm saying that there is a beauty about God. How else do we see God's invisible attributes and his divine nature? The most important one that I could tell you today is that the universe is made for man. Now I could give you the Christians and tell you what they say about it, but instead let me go to Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein said, the most incomprehensible thing about the world is that it is comprehensible. Even Stephen Hawking, in A Brief History of Time, will tell you that if you change any of the laws of thermodynamics, of whatever it may be, just a slight change of gravity, life as we know it is not sustainable. We can't live. The worlds would not exist. John Polkinghorne, who was a theoretical physicist at Cambridge, a fellow of the Royal Society... Um, uh, uh, One of the the, uh, key professors of mathematics at Cambridge, a don over the college there, left it to become an Anglican uh, uh, preacher, but for decades was one of the world's well-published leading thinkers in this arena. And he he equates it to this. He says, you know, if you were going to create a universe... And you had a universe machine to create a universe. And it's got all these little knobs on it. And this knob is the knob you set for how tight gravity will be. And this knob is the knob you set for how tight uh, uh, electromagnetism will work. And this knob is the knob you'll set for, for specific weight and gravity, of, 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 weight of, of, of protons and, 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 and all of these different things. He says, you got all of these knobs... He says, Do you realize if the machine is not set up exactly the way our machine was? You tweak the universe a smidgen, and there's nobody who exists. You can take Simon Conway Morris. Dr. Morris is an evolutionary biologist at, at Cambridge, and he believes in evolution. He also believes in God, the virgin birth, and the death, burial, and physical resurrection of Jesus. An interesting amalgamum. But Dr. Morris would tell you even as an evolutionist, his view of things are that if you rewound his evolutionary tape back to the beginning and you replayed it, you would come to exactly where we are today with human beings praising God because all of creation was set out and designed and built in such a way that we would be here today doing this. Because the universe is determined toward that end in his mind. So you take any of those courses you want, doesn't matter to me which one you take because all of them are going to lead you to this conclusion. The universe is made for man. That's the conclusion of the psalmist. This is the same thing the psalm 8 said. It started out, Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. Look at the, everything you've done. What is man that you're mindful of him? Yet, you've made him a little lower than all of the heavenly beings. And you've crowned him with glory and honor. Your glory is displayed above the heavens, but you have put some glory on man to rule over creation, over the beasts of the field, over the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. The fish don't catch us for food. We catch them. They didn't come out of the water and put lollipops on the end of fishing poles for the, hey little kid, come eat some lollipop. (laughs) I caught a big one. No, we catch them. Save that Jonah story. That was a different event. So what do we have here? We have the psalm saying the same thing, that as wonderful as the universe is, the reason we lift up and praise God is because somehow, though man doesn't merit it, God has made all of this for man and put man in a position that he is in, and that declares the greatest glory of God of all. And that's the point of the Exodus 3. That's the point. Oh, do you remember now? Now that God is now that we're talking about God in these terms, as some being that created one hundred sextillion stars. Bless Moses' heart. You remember Moses? Uh, God, I got a favor to ask. What's that, Moses? I'd like to see your face. <laughs> I don't, the story doesn't say God laughed, but God just politely said, "Well, Moses, a human can't really see my face and live. But if you want to hide in the rock, I'll let some of my glory pass by you." We can't see the face of a God like that and live. That God, God is so far beyond what we're thinking. And here's the problem. See, we grow up with this frame of reference, and God fit into my neural pathways as a boy in Lubbock, Texas. And then we go off to college. Do you know what happens if, if, and you teach this to your kids and you teach this to your grandkids? I've got a daughter in here and her fiance in here, and you better teach this to my grandkids or I will. Some people go off to college and think, I'm free, I'm free, I can do whatever I want. I don't have to go to church. I don't have to do all of those things I did. And just live week by week by week. And they're learning things, but they never plug God in. And then four years later, they leave. And maybe they think about God, but they realize, you know, God just seems so childish. That was the God of my youth. Because their neural pathways have been developing. And they've been developing without growing with the Lord. And the Lord doesn't seem to fit in. And the Lord just goes back to those neural pathways of when they were children. Oh, God, and the walls of Jericho. Yeah, that's fine for people who want it. But I'm in the real world now, and I'm a mature adult. Oh, no. We must learn and we must teach everybody, including ourselves, that God is greater than anything we could ever ask or think or conceive of. He's so much beyond that, and he's done everything to plug into our lives. And any time we're living, and any time we're growing, and any time our neural pathways are developing, and we're not plugging God in, we are growing into an illusion and a lie that will rob us of the reality of life. It just will. And we shouldn't wonder, why have I grown so far from God? Why does God seem like such a silly concept to me now? Because you let your neural pathways grow without him. And so you've just got this relegated view of a God who's way too small for what you know now to be true in the world. And you think in your mind, well, I can see, it'd be pushing the limits, but I can see God making 2,000 stars. But the idea that God is some creature who could actually make a hundred, sextillion stars and keep up with every electron flying around every nucleus and every atom, well, <laughs> oh, that's, come on, that's much too big a God. No, it isn't. You just don't have it in your brain right. Philippians 2. This is the wonderment of why God has cared for man. Paul says to consider the attitude. Consider the attitude that Jesus had who existed in the form of God. He existed in the form of the one who created a universe with all of this stuff going on. And he did not count. That essence of God, something he had to hold on to. Paul says, but he cuneoed, He emptied himself. He just left it behind and, and poured it out. Say, But yes, he was fully divine. Yes, he was fully divine. But as man, no man could hold that measure of divinity. So was God, Jesus, fully God? Yes, he was. But even Jesus says that he was limited. He says, "No man knows the day I'm coming back. Not even the son of man. Only my Father in heaven." That's the point of him emptying himself. He was fully God, but he had purposefully left aside the, some of the power and the the the, the look. Paul says to have this attitude who although he existed in the form of God did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped but he emptied himself taking the form of a servant. He became a man. Now you want to talk about an amazing miracle. Talk about an incarnation and have a Christmas sermon around that. That the God who created all of this becomes a man. And then taking Paul's next step and being found in appearance as a man, Paul said, he humbled himself to other men to the point of death, even death on the cross. Why? Why? Because the universe was made with a recognition that you and I would be here today. And God wanting us to grow in our understanding of him. And walk with him. And if God had just been the God of the stars, we could never relate. How can you walk with a God who is that awesome? But he became a man and manifested himself in a way that we can relate to, to show his love. And to show his devotion. And to grab hold of us. For his infinite eternity. Oh Lord our Lord. How majestic is your name in all the earth. And any time we think God is just who we think he is. We need to remember our God is too small. Would you pray with me. Father with humility. And only through the blood of Jesus dare we ever approach you. With confession on our mouths, contrition in our hearts, as being sinful, being unworthy, being self centered, being proud. We confess it all as sin, Father, and we pause before you in just a small glimpse of your wonder. And we lift your name up, Yahweh God. And Father, we're thankful not only for your glories displayed in the heavens. But we're thankful that you care enough for us and are mindful enough of us. To take on earthly form and redeem us from our sins in a way that is consistent and just just as your divine attributes and character mandate and Lord for the honor and privilege of getting to worship and praise you for eternity we are eternally grateful in Jesus name Amen